This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, subversely here on KUCI, um, the opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, today we're going to air a talk given by Professor Assad Abu Khalil. He's a professor of political science at uh, Cal State uh, University Stanislaus. And he was on campus on April 19th, uh, talking about the Islam factor in Western popular culture beyond the Danish cartoons. And her, his talk was part of the Difficult Dialogues uh, series that is uh, co-sponsored by uh, the Ford, uh, co- uh, funded by the Ford Foundation. Uh, and it was the co-sponsors were the Working Group Center for Middle East and African Studies, the Department of Political Science, the UCI Difficult Dialogues Project, the Center for Global Peace and Conflict Studies, the International Studies Program, the Center for Citizen Peacebuilding, the Program in Women's Studies, and the Middle East Studies Student Initiative. So let's go to this talk. Uh, she's being introduced by a faculty member. that occurred on campus. So they have one that was recorded by them 
on March 3rd at 16.40 minutes. And it says that in the social science parking structure, 10 Middle Eastern subjects in mid-20s involved in some form of religious exercise. <laughs> if this police log item appeared on any other religious group, group that is not Muslim, I have no doubt that there would still be people picketing outside of police headquarters here on this campus. I think the fact that these things occur, and occur with very little penalty or very little reaction, indicates a climate of tolerance for intolerance when it comes to Arabs and Muslims in the United States. I mean, this is not to say that these kind of things do not take place in other countries, but it seems to me here we have now room for people to express their bigotry, prejudice against Muslims, rather in polite company. I mean, there are so many anecdotal stories that one can tell you after September 11 that I'm sure many of you who are of Middle East backgrounds like myself can identify with. After September 11, in the city of Stockton, which is close to where I live in Central Valley, California, up north, uh, the police was called in one, at one point because people freaked out. They said, we have Middle East neighbors, and they are sitting on the balcony with very odd-looking, horrific weapons. The police came on the spot to find that they were smoking the shisha. <laughs> there was another case. In Stockton, California, Saudi students who really suffered, people from Gulf countries suffered the most after September 11, ironically, even though their governments are clients of the United States. So many of them organized a volunteer group to take elderly people to do their grocery shopping. So one day, I mean, I heard from one of the students. One day, a Saudi student took this elderly woman to go for her shopping. She came back, and he was carrying her groceries to her apartment. Uh, when he came in, delivering the groceries, she told him, I really think that you people are nice. I'm going to tell my husband when I see him tonight that not all terrorists are bad people. <laughs> and I think that when a government, when a government sets the tone of prejudice, it seems to me that society often follows. Before I begin, I want to say that when we speak about Islam, we are speaking about a subject that has some peculiar characteristics. I will argue that Islam is not like any other religion in many ways, in more ways than one. First, Islam is not like any other religion in that it is not to be known or to be studied. It is something to be feared, or it is something to be fought. We don't have interest, much interest, in America in really studying Islam. I mean, the only case where people speak about an increase in those who are studying Arabic, and of course the numbers are not as impressive if they are not taken by percentages. Uh, but the reason is because there is a tremendous increase, and if you speak to people in Middle Eastern centers, in Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, and other places, much of them are people from the government. And nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, there is a need on the part of the government to study Arabic, to translate some Arabic material, but merely for the purpose of facilitating their conquest, facilitating their war. So this is not like somebody wanting to study, say, Victorian England, or uh, wanting to study French literature. This is a subject of study that is intended 
for political purpose. I mean, this is not something new, of course. This is part of the baggage of Orientalism. This is part of Napoleon's expedition to Egypt when he brought with them, with him, you know, uh, Sylvester de Sassi and other Orientalists to translate the flyers that he was giving to the Egyptian people. So basically, there was a need to study them, to conquer them, and of course, I mean, the word is now to liberate them. I mean, because they are not capable of liberating themselves, you need a superior stock of race of people to do the liberation on their behalf, even if it entails, of course, bombing them, killing them, and injuring them. The second element is that this is a religion, unlike other religion, that does not require specialists to teach it. I mean, Islam is a religion that is now being taught all throughout the United States by people who do not have any specialty in it. This is why, in fact, many people who teach it are people whose only qualifications are hostility to Islam. I mean, but this is also not something that is new. Early Western studies of Islam were in the hands of ministers. I mean, some of you may not know. I mean, some of the famous Orientalists, you wouldn't know that many of them were either officially or unofficially either ordained ministers or priests from Louis, uh, Louis Massignon, or if you talk about uh, W. Montgomery Watt, among others. I mean, the first real translation of the Quran into Latin was conducted by the Vatican on behalf of the Pope because they wanted to see what these reasons were about. Uh, more on this point later. Third, this is a religion, unlike any other religion, that government, Western governments require a foreign policy toward. I mean, you do not have American foreign policy toward Buddhism, American foreign policy towards uh, Judaism, towards Presbyterianism, Quakers. No. But towards Islam, you do. Because Islam is not a reference to a religion here. Islam is much more than that. This is why when Samuel Huntington, as you probably have heard, spoke about the clash of civilization, he was not doing something really original. Anybody who has been reading the classical Orientalist literature, Bernard Lewis among others, and that's where he borrowed the term, know that this is something that we've known all along. Because Islam, I mean, as Bernard Lewis talks about in his book, Islam in the West, and it has been a book that all of us who study the Middle East have to read at some level of our education, you realize to him Islam is not only religion. Islam is religion. It's people. It's a civilization. Ostensible civilization exists in isolation and separation apart from everything else in the world. So there is all this interaction among all people in the world, something that broke down all the barriers of civilization, except Muslims. Muslims are referred to as people who inhabit a world that is a part of everything else. I mean, that is, not only of, that is not only true of Muslim countries. This is something that is true in their imagination of Muslims who inhabit Western countries. And this is something that will explain why no matter how long a Muslim lives in the West, no matter how long uh, their departure is from the land of origin, they are seen as people who do not inhabit your world, do not breathe your air, because they are infected by the virus of Islam, and that's something that is perpetuated from parents to children as long as they adhere to that religion. Uh, and this is something that's openly talked about. You know, there are conferences, uh, workshops, the U.S. government set up meetings about dealing with Islam. I mean, imagine the uproar if this same government has meetings about 
dealing with Buddhism, dealing with Judaism, again, there would be such strong reaction about elements of a policy that smack of racism and prejudice against members of that faith. Uh, four, it's a religion that is different from other religions because it serves a good purpose in that Islam is a religion that is good for the self-esteem of other religions. Islam is serving a good purpose because Judaism, Christianity are not Islam. And this is something that has been true all along. This very much is like Voltaire's uh, play, Mahomet, when he wrote the introduction of it. I mean, you think this is Voltaire, that Voltaire, the cynic, the critic, the free thinker, would be free of these Western prejudices about Islam. But he wasn't, just as Marx was not either. In the introduction of the play, Mahomet, Voltaire talks about how this is a contrast between a true religion, Christianity, versus these false religions and false imposters like Muhammad and so on. I think this is true today. In other words, there is a need to dwell on the evil of Islam in order to underline for Christians, for Jews and others, how the virtues of their religion, that they are not like Islam, they are not as oppressive as Islam and so on. Uh, number five, uh, it is a religion, unlike any other religion, that requires people from outside the faith to reform it. Witness what's going on since September 11th. I mean, you read in the New York Times, Thomas Friedman, you read uh, Dick Cheney, you read people in the US government and in the media and in popular culture openly speaking about reforming Islam. I mean, that's an unusual thing. You never hear people who are Christians or Buddhists speaking about, let's reform Judaism. It could be seen as an upfront. I mean, in any other religion, people have the reasonable conclusion that the matters of reforming or unreforming any religion is a matter that is left for members of every faith. And it seems to me it should be seen as axiomatic that the matters of reforming Islam, if Islam is to be reformed, should be decided by Muslims and not decided by outsiders and certainly not by Thomas Friedman of the New York Times. Having said any of that, I mean, there is one consolation for Muslims, which is, no matter how much they pontificate in the New York Times, in the U.S. government, about reforming Islam, no matter how much they try to prop up people who ostensibly are Muslims but who are dissidents in Islam, and many of the names, but this has become a profession, of course. I mean, this is a career today. If you are somebody who's born a Muslim, you can make a career in bashing Islam. There's tremendous need for that. But the consolation for Muslims back in their Muslim homes is that these people have no bearing. They have no influence. All of that is supposed to be taking place in terms of an ostensible debate about Islam. It's only taking place in the New York Times, web pages, Fox News, no matter how many people they pop up, hoping that they will have an influence on Islam that they are having this particular problem uh, with. And it seems to me, changes in religion, whatever changes, no matter what, how you judge them, is going to be something that's decided by members of the faith, Muslims, Jews, Christians, or others. The sixth element, which is very important for our purposes, is the question of uh, the, the notion that there is a certain propensity in Islam to violence. And of course, this is not something that began in September 11th. 
This is something that has been a facet of Western culture and media all throughout. What happened after September 11 is that it has been popularized. It has become more propagandized. So there is a notion that, I mean, of course, you will get people to admit, I mean, how can you not, that there are Jews and there are Christians and there are Buddhists and others who do commit acts of violence. But see, what's different about Islam is this. Acts of violence by Muslims are not individual acts of violence. They are peculiar acts of violence. They are Muslim acts of violence. They are part of what is seen as the rubric of Muslim or Islamic violence. This is why there is a certain category called Islamic terrorism. And this is why, no matter how many acts of violence are visited upon Palestinians, by Israelis who are of the Jewish faith, it will never be seen as Jewish violence. <clears throat> because violence by Christians, by Jews and others, is seen as acts of violence, the responsibility of which should be only uh, placed on the shoulders of the individuals perpetrating that act of violence. That's not the case in Islam. In Islam, if any member of the faith commits any crazy act anywhere, that is blamed squarely on all Muslims, on the Islamic religion. And what is very unfortunate about that regard is that Muslim organizations in America and Arab organizations in America are perpetuating this particular stereotype. I mean, you will notice now that whenever a Muslim does anything violent anywhere, Muslim organizations, Arab organizations, are required to issue statements of condemnation against it. It's not that people are in favor of these acts of violence. That's not the issue. But the issue is, by their behavior, they are reinforcing the cloud of suspicion that now hovers over every individual Muslim. So my point is not that there are no terrorists who are Muslims. Far from that. I argue it is high time that Muslims become entitled to their share of crazies, of kooks, and yes, of terrorists, just as you have your share of these people. But the difference is when you have them, you do not see them as representative of the general prevailing culture, of the general prevailing religion. They are seen as an aberration. When they occur by Muslims, they become the entire responsibility of the entire Muslim world. And it seems to me, any expectations of exclusive acts of condemnation only by members of one faith, Islam, is something that is not short of racism and bigotry against that religion. I mean, we should reach a point where Muslims are not asked to account for the behavior of every Muslim, every Arab, anywhere in the world. They should be seen as, I mean, real equality is when you fear them as much as you fear yourself. When you like them as much as you like your own group. In that, just like any other group, they have their share of the various diverse individualities. You're listening to a uh, talk given by uh, Professor Assad Abu Khalil at UC Irvine uh, in April. Uh, he is addressing not just the media depiction, but how generally the public popular culture uh, conflates Muslims with Arabs. 
This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org uh, streaming online. We go back to our talk. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Uh, seven, assume you're still following. Uh, knowledge, I mean, this is borrowing from Edward Said's book when he spoke on the Orientalism about how knowledge of the Middle East is political knowledge versus pure knowledge. The distinction between political knowledge and pure knowledge. Knowledge of Islam is political knowledge. Knowledge of Buddhism, of Shintoism, is pure knowledge. Knowledge of Islam is of value to the American government with its unending words. As a result, the agenda of research, writing, lecturing, speaking about Islam is certainly affected, influenced, shaped, molded by the U.S. government. Even if you are, uh, you know, uh, scholars of Islam and the Middle East who pride yourselves on your independence and being separate from the agenda of the government and an empire and so on. I mean, even people who are critics, you know, uh, like Lalo or myself and so on, but we are also, to some degree, influenced by the agenda of the government, whether we like it or not, because we get invited to certain events, conferences, workshops, the agenda of which is not separate from what people want to know, students want to know, colleagues want to know, and do not forget the question of financing, funding, which is crucial. I mean, just think about this. How much money is there available for somebody who wants to study suicide bombing versus somebody who wants to study 17th century women in Egypt? I mean, if you are about to do your PhD, which one you will find much more, more rewards, you know? I mean, this explains why now we have a rush I call them academic intruders, people who are not Middle East specialists, who are invading our fields in order to study what is of tremendous value and interest to the U.S. government. I'll give an example of somebody whose work is politically palatable by my taste. You know, uh, professor at the University of Chicago Political Science Department, Richard Pape, and he wrote a book called Dying to Win about suicide bombing. He got more than a million dollars of funding about that. And the conclusions of the book are quite to my liking personally. I mean, I think he did, uh, you know, a service, I think, by revealing elements about suicide bombings that I guess people were surprised to learn. But still, I mean, we have now, after September 11, erased the boundaries that should exist between specialists of one field and specialists of another field, so that people who study Latin America are separate from those who study the Middle East, and on and on. Now, it becomes of a matter of how strongly and intensely you feel about the people you're studying. And second, it's about what are you planning to do in terms of your agenda of research. I mean, if you are somebody who has studied Russian and has been doing Russian studies all along, if you express interest in studying suicide bombing, I'm not kidding you, you will really have an easier time getting funding for your research. So in that sense, the political knowledge of Islam is intersecting with the agenda of action, I mean, I mean violent action, of the U.S. government. Eight, uh, knowledge about Islam has remained static in the West in this regard. I mean, traditionally, by classical, in classical Orientalist literature, knowledge of Islam doesn't have to take into consideration the factors of time and place. That's still the same today. I mean, 
Clifford Geertz wrote this very small book about Islam observed, comparing the differences between Islam in Indonesia and Islam in Morocco. But you know, that lesson is missed by the majority of people who speak, talk, and produce on Islam today. We still have the notion that is reinforced by the stubborn dogmatism of classical Orientalism that Islam does not change. I mean, this is why when you hear the foremost American and Western experts on Islam, Bernard Lewis, this, the significance of this man it cannot be underestimated for those of us who study the region. I mean, this is somebody who was retired after September 11. After September 11, he was a man in his mid-80s, hasn't been teaching. He brought back from retirement by the U.S. government. He is one of three authors who was invited to the Oval Office. Ostensibly, these are authors whose books read by your esteemed president. Um, the other one is like Michael Crichton and somebody else. And so we know now that he read three books. But the point is, <laughs> Bernard Lewis has regularly advised Dick Cheney as well as the president of the United States on the subject of Islam. And this is somebody who has excelled I mean, Ney perfected the art of moving, when he speaks about Islam, back and forth with very little evidence that doesn't derive, as Edward Said said in the third section of Orientalism, that doesn't derive from the ancient texts. I mean, anything that doesn't fit into the ancient text, he's baffled. I mean, one time he has one article in which he speaks about of course, there are millions of Muslims today who live under non-Muslim rule. And Muslims, easily in millions, are moving to live in lands that are non-Muslim in rule. And yet Bernard Lewis, in one article, he says, I couldn't find anything in the ancient text about Muslims who live under non-Muslim rules. He was baffled. So what if they don't exist? It doesn't matter. Muslims, for the last several centuries, have been moving in droves without any difficulty, and nobody questions the Islam of those who live under non-Muslim rules, whether these are Muslims in Israel, or whether they are in Western uh, societies, including here in the United States. Uh, nine, I would say that perhaps in 1978, when Edward Said spoke about uh, Orientalism, he was complaining about trends uh, in Western scholarship and literature about Islam and about the Middle East. I fear that we have moved from Orientalism to something that is worse. I mean, I don't know what to call it. I mean, sometimes when I read what is being written about Islam, what is being said about Islam, I rather miss the classical Orientalists, the Sylvester de Sassi, Maxime Rodinson, W. Montgomery Watt, uh, the early Orientalists, Louis Massignon, and many others. Because at least they knew the languages. At least they traveled to the region. At least they spent years in looking at texts and manuscripts. Now, we don't even have Orientals. We have people who don't know the languages, who've never been into those areas. And this partly explains the career, the rising career of Israeli Orientals, people who have not been to those places, have not studied those people, haven't known those languages, because they are capable of making generalizations that are in sync. It's all about synergy in business as well as in academia because they make generalizations that are in sync with the assumptions of the U.S. government in dealing with the subject of Islam. Now, going back to the subject of my talk, uh, the core of it, is that I argue that today 
it is not easy to speak to you, Western audiences, American audiences, about Islam. I find it hard to teach about the subject because, you see, if I'm teaching a course about Guatemala or a course about Shintoism, I will be dealing largely with an audience that doesn't know much about the subject and you begin from scratch, brick by brick. But no, when you are dealing with Islam or the Middle East, I mean, you are dealing with a subject on which most of your audiences think they know. <coughs> they think they know. Because they have been bombarded with layers of propaganda in popular and political cultures about Islam. So how is it possible to speak to them, to teach them about gender, about sexuality, about politics, when they have been under tremendous pressure, socialization, from early age about these very same subjects. So we are competing. So knowledge and scholarship is competing here with popular and political cultures about Islam and the Middle East. And that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, whenever I speak about the Middle East and Islam, I know that there is always in the room with us standing Bin Laden. I mean, there is no escape about that. In every course I teach on the Middle East, I'm aware that Bin Laden is in the room that people associate the subject matter with the horrific act of terrorism of September 11. There is no escape about that, no matter what you do. The fact that the deeds of these people, Bin Laden and his supporters, people who can fit in one room or two, uh, one cave or two, these people are seen, are taken, taken to be representative of all Muslims, of an entire vast region, even of Muslims who abhorred what he stood for and what he did. But it doesn't matter because you have succeeded in putting every Muslim on the defensive. Whatever you speak on, whatever you do, you are expected first and foremost to prove as a Muslim, or even as a Muslim born, you have to prove your civility. You have to prove, I mean, more than that, you have to prove your humanness. You have to prove your humanness. And I think this explains the ferocity of American war on people who are of Muslim faith. This explains the ferocity of the war, the United States war, in Afghanistan as well as in Iraq. And it also explains the extent to which there was very little outcry on the, on, on the level, the magnitude of suffering, human suffering in those wars. I mean, just to give you these elements of that, you have to see that if it wasn't for prejudice, these wars wouldn't have been possible, I argue wouldn't have been possible. When you think about the level of destruction, if you take the Iraq War of 1991, uh, up until February of uh, 1991, the United States dropped 88,000 tons of bombs and missiles on Iraq. 88,000 tons of bombs and missiles on Iraq. Of course, you hear about smart weapons and how surgical these strikes are. These are the language they use. Do you know how much of these bombs and missiles miss their targets? According to Navy figures, 70% or more of these bombs and missiles missed their targets. And this is not from a left-wing source. This is from a mainstream reporter, Washington Post writer Rick Atkinson, in his book Crusade. Think about that. But you will say now, well, and, but, but you will say, what about the smart bombs? Smart bombs are very expensive. You probably reserve them for wars 
against people who are more expensive than Arabs and Muslims. Certainly. This is why in the war on Yugoslavia, you've used more than 90% of the bombs used were smart weapons. But let's go back to smart weapons in Iraq war. In Iraq war, something like 10% of smart bombs are dumb bombs. They miss their targets. They miss their targets. And even in Yugoslavia, against a more expensive group of people, uh, something like 500 civilians were killed in that war. What about the Afghanistan war? A war that was supported by 93% of you here in the United States. 93%. In that war, I have the figures until March of 2002. Uh, according to Center Command, these are official figures, up until March of 2002. September of 2001, right? Yeah, so it's 2002. 22,400 uh, uh, bombs and missiles were dropped on Afghanistan by March. But you would say the weapons have advanced. It has. And for that reason, 25% of those missed their targets. 25%. Do you know what that means? I mean, just think about the hundreds, I mean, more than the hundreds, all the bombs and missiles that fall on innocent people. This happens regularly. You don't hear about it. And I think that you need to vilify all Muslims in order to develop a kind of numbed reaction to these cases. Do you know on average every year now in Iraq, a country which you ostensibly have liberated, although you seem to be liberating cities more than once, in Iraq, on average, something like 300 civilians are killed every year now since the war started on checkpoints. These are only the ones that are killed on checkpoints. This is not to mention and count those who are killed by the unending air raids and bombing campaign by U.S. planes on villages and towns throughout Iraq. Throughout Iraq. And it seems to me you need this kind of prejudice against Islam to accept that. Otherwise, it would be like a source of outrage. There would be a U.N. cry in the streets of the United States. But there isn't. And I think that's why. And the other thing that's very troubling is that in the United States, there seem to be indications or desires to learn about Islam only when there's a crisis, only when there is terrorism. I remember one time in 1993, I was contacted by Richard Bernstein, who is now the Germany correspondent for the New York Times, and he was writing a five-part series about Islam for the New York Times. So when he told me that he would like to interview me to talk about him for the series, he heard me grumble. And he said, aren't you upset that we are doing something serious about Islam to teach the people about it? I said, no, I'm not happy. Of course I'm not. Because the New York Times decided to do that series in 1993 after the World Trade Center bombing back in that year. When there are bombs, when there's violence, when there's a public association between violence and Islam, that's when they suddenly develop the intellectual curiosity to learn about Islam and the Arabs. So in that sense, no. I would rather you postpone those studies because you merely reinforce the association inescapable in the minds of the public between violence, terrorism, and Islam. Uh, and I think also, of course, I mean, we can talk about that, but I uh, don't think I would have time to, to deal about that now. But maybe if you're interested in the question and answer, we are not served by our press. Our press is not specialized. The foreign correspondents who cover Muslim countries are not what they are in Europe. If you compare 
the German correspondent, for example, Der Spiegel, uh, French correspondents in Le Monde, or British correspondent for even conservative papers at the Times, or even liberal papers, independent, Guardian, you will find there is a tremendous gap of knowledge. It's not what you read here. I mean, the economists, I mean, it's not about politics. They believe in two things that American media don't believe in anymore. One, they believe it's important if you cover a country to know its language. This is not something that is now accepted as a requirement for American journalism. It's not. I mean, just think about it. I don't care if I stay in China for 20 years. If I don't know the language, I am not qualified to tell you anything about China. And these people don't spend 20 years. They go for a year or two, and then they become experts on that country, the language of which they don't know. I mean, sometimes we send politicians as ambassadors. I mean, look at uh, Senator, uh, uh, what's his name, from Tennessee, who lost it. I mean, anyway, he's Senator from Tennessee, Democrat, he lost the election, and as a prize of consolation, Jim Sasser is his name, Democrat from Tennessee, lost the election, so uh, Bill Clinton, to reward him in 1998, he sent him as a, he told, he told him, vote with me on this bill, and even if you lose the election, I will send you an ambassador. And he lost the election, and he said, you know, but I don't, I don't want to go to any country, I want an important country. And he told him to pick a country, and he picked China. I mean, I don't know if he'd had Chinese food before in his life, but he had absolutely no knowledge, no familiarity with anything Chinese. Today we have an ambassador in Japan, who is a former politician, Senator Howard Baker. The same thing, no knowledge of the language of the culture. I mean, in the case of journalists, it's worse because they stay for one year or two. The second element that they don't believe in in the American media is, which they do believe in in the European media, is residency. European correspondents stay in those countries. As a result, you know, if you take the French correspondent for Le Monde for 30 years, Eric Rouleau, he knew Hebrew and he knew Arabic. And he knows more about the region, I argue, than we academics do. We don't have that. The United States have failed to produce one Eric Rouleau, one Peter Mansfield, one Arnold Hottinger. And it's not because of genetics. The media don't allow it now. They, they, they believe they can afford it. You know, They have the roving correspondence. They have a person covering Michael Jackson one day and Chinese military the second day. I mean, literally. Literally. Okay. The second element I want to mention is there is in the United States and in the West in general a persistence of a very troubling trend which Maxime Robinson in his brilliant book called Theological Centrism. First of all, we have to say that Western attitude to Islam has not been consistent. It has changed. You know, in a little book uh, by Tunisian academic Hisham Mishayet, L'Europe et l'Islam, he speaks about how in the West the attitude to Islam changed. You know, in medieval Christianity, Islam used to be hit on the head with the stick of Christian dogma. Islam was criticized and faulted for being too liberal, too permissive, too sexual. Today, Islam is being, this is his insight by the way, not mine. Today, but, but I totally agree with him. Today he says, Islam is being hit on the head with the stick of secular humanism. So today Islam is being hit on the head because it is seen as being too puritanical, too conservative, too strict. The things that were opposite of what Islam was viewed for back then. 
the second element in Maxime Robinson's book, La Fascination de l'Islam, he speaks about a word which I often use called <coughs> theologocentrism. Theologocentrism. This is his word. According to him, he defined it as, quote, the school of thought in Western countries that attribute all observable phenomena among Muslim countries to matters of Islamic theology. Basically, it's the notion that Muslims do and say whatever they do and say because Islam compels them to do it. So as a result, this is not separate from the association between Islam and religiosity. You see? I mean, there's a notion that every Muslim is religious by nature. In reality, Muslims are not the most religious people in the world or the most practicing. Whether that's good or bad, it's a matter of judgment. I mean, in the book that is done, uh, you know, in more than 70 countries that he studied by University of Michigan uh, political scientist Ronald Engelhardt, and you can see a summary of those studies in a massive book called Human Values, he compares people in, in that book in 45 countries. And Muslims are not the most religious people necessarily. He found the most religious countries in the world are the United States, uh, Nigeria, and India. The United States is one of the most religious countries in the world. The percentage of atheists I mean, I mean, I have footnotes for this if you want. You can email me for footnotes on anything I said. Percentage of atheists in Central Asian republics, predominantly Muslim, is higher, much higher, than percentage of atheists in the United States. I mean, I know we have the smallest percentage of atheists of any country uh, in the world here in the United States. So I think there's a persistence of that, the notion that Muslims adhere to their faith and they do everything they do because of that. In the reality, Muslims are just like any other people. I mean, they are flexible. Islam couldn't have become the second largest faith and the fastest growing faith worldwide if the religion is not flexible. It's very flexible. And if anything, it has an embedded flexibility that allowed it to spread worldwide. And this is why Islam adjusted to India. I mean, when Muslims went to India, they had to deal with the prevalence of Hinduism. And they had to compromise. I mean, they had to basically shift from the notion that Hindus have to be seen as pagans. And they basically said, okay, we'll have them as people of the book, like Jews and Christians, in order to accept it. Now, I will get on the specific topic of the Danish uh, cartoons. Uh, there are so many things about that controversy that is worth to begin a discussion about all these issues. There are so many things to be said about it. Let me first begin by the premise about what happened because I heard on good authority that there was a controversy on campus about these things. Now, first of all, I was, as I was telling my colleagues yesterday, you know, since I was a kid, I used to do, and sometimes I still do, political cartoons. So as somebody who grew up mocking his parents in those caricatures and relatives and teachers, you know, I have a very strong affinity to that art form. And certainly I do believe that Anybody, artists in particular, writers, should have the right to offend, to mock, to ridicule, and in my opinion, anybody, without any restrictions, be they prophets, be they luminaries, leaders, whatever. But the question is, does the West adhere to that, or do they practice selective secularism, or do they practice conditional freedom of speech? And the answer is, certainly the latter. 
Certainly the latter. We don't live in a context in which all rules are permitted and there is unconditional freedom of speech. It doesn't exist. I mean, how blind if it exists? It doesn't. There is constrained speech, whether it's in the United States or in Canada. In Canada, it's a much more liberal society than we are. In many of these countries, they have penalties and fines for certain forms of speech. In Germany, in Canada, in Austria, among other places. And the question is, I mean, not only do some newspapers and authorities in the West wish to practice selective mocking. Selective mocking. I mean, many of these people, I mean, of course, we know in the case of Danish cartoons, they don't want to mock Christian prophets. They want to mock the Muslim prophet. And they, want, they knew what they were doing. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the person behind. Now, if there is universal mocking, that doesn't bother me. I relish the opportunity to mock all religions, to mock all prophets. But that's not what we're talking about here. I think, personally, when you practice selective mocking of religion, that is prejudice. I mean, look at how they talk about Islamic fundamentalism. I live in a country where people take pride in Christian fundamentalism. They take pride in Jewish fundamentalism and orthodoxy. And if you say that you are a Muslim fundamentalism, you probably will be interrogated. Maybe the campus police here will accuse you of suspicious activity. I mean, that is why there is a difference. But I think liberals in the West, I'm not going to talk about conservative because they are a much easier target. Liberals in the West, I think, are guilty of several offenses to Muslims in this particular story. I mean, first of all, not only they want to insist on the right to selectively offend one religion but not others, but secondly, they want to deny the right of the Muslims to be offended. I mean, this is what I find to be so audacious. I mean, when the Salman Rushdie controversy came out in the 1980s, there were some people who said, and certainly I am of the view that writers should write anything they want, without any reference, without any reference, without any respect. And in that regard, I support the right of Salman Rushdie and others, even though I don't like his politics whatsoever, especially that become advocate of empire after September 11th, and he's become, I think, guilty of prejudicial views against Islam. But I don't believe in restraining the rights of artists, writers to write and express themselves any way they want. But back then, I remember, people were saying, how could Muslims protest against the satanic verses when they haven't read the book? And I'm like, we're not talking about literary criticism here. We're talking about they read what they needed to know, and they were offended. I mean, do we have to read Mein Kampf to be offended by the hateful anti-Semitism of the Nazis? No, we don't. And Jews are permitted and others. We can be offended by hate without having to read an entire book by a new Nazi party. We know what they stand for. Similarly, Muslims should be at least, especially by liberal advocates who speak and pontificate about freedom of speech, permit Muslims at least to the right to be offended, which is a right that's being denied to them. They have, they are asked to participate in the liberal uh, atmosphere marketplace to adhere to the rules of the game whereby they have to offend their religion, but they have to show utter respect and reverence for other religions that are worthy of respect and honor. I mean, that's what there is controversy about. But worse than that, I mean, the West not only talks about, I mean, I'm talking about the West as Western governments and media and institutions. 
Just as in the case of Samarishdi, I have to sum up like this soon, right? Uh, I mean, in the case of Samarishdi, look what they did. I remember in New York in, in those years, in the 1980s, people, liberals, again, I'm not going to speak on conservative, they are much easier to target. Liberals held public readings from that book of Samarishdi. I mean, I couldn't believe that. Some of the most liberal names, some of them leftists by American standards at least, they took to the podium and they read excerpts from Salman Rushdie. So they basically were telling the Muslims, this is the message that frustrates Muslims and they have every right to be upset. They tell them, first, we want to mock your religion, but we're going to show utter reverence and respect for Judaism and for Christianity. The second they are telling them, you have to accept those works that offend you. And you cannot be entitled to the right to be offended. You can. If you feel offended, you are a backward, uncivilized person. I mean, that's what's being requested by Muslims. And third, just in case you didn't get the point, even though the book is available in every bookstore, we are going to read it publicly. Just in case you did not hear those words yourself, you will hear them on TV and on the radio. I mean, first of all, can you imagine any of these ostensible liberal advocates of free speech having, in the name of free speech, supporting anti-Semites? They wouldn't do that. I mean, I would have a hard time supporting an anti-Semitic writer, uh, the hateful neo-Nazi, in my opinion, David Irving, who languishes in jail uh, for anti-Semitic writing. I mean, I wouldn't defend him. So they wouldn't defend him either. Even though they, they, they try, when it comes to Islam, to speak in a very sanctimonious, but in my opinion, totally uh, uh, false, in a totally false premise about free speech. It's not about free speech. If it is about free speech, you would do the same to offenses to other religion. And they wouldn't dare that. They wouldn't do it. And they don't do it. So they would have public reading of that to offend Muslims further. The same thing, the same thing about the Muslim <coughs> cartoons. There were college newspapers in America, including at Duke University, where we recently have heard about uh, the rape uh, on campus. Two people were already uh, indicted, I think, on that. And the college newspaper there, among other places, also in the name of free speech, carried those cartoons. Now, I mean, do you see the stretch? Like, to write an editorial that I support the right of the Danish newspaper is one thing. But to take it further, to carry the cartoon, you're making another statement. And we know that they don't do that when it comes to offenses uh, to other religions. I mean, in conclusion, it seems to me that Danish cartoon controversy revealed several things. Now, there are some people who are saying, like Kofi Annan and, other, and some Muslim leaders have said, that we should have certain rules about not offending certain prophets or holy individuals. <coughs> I am not supportive of that. I mean, as I told you, I stand categorically in favor of the right to mock and ridicule. And I believe that is something that we should affirm. Having said that, I think we should be wary of those voices who preach very selective secularism, who preach secularism, but only for Muslims, who preach free speech, but not for Muslims, who preach satire, but only against Muslim religion, but not against Judaism or Christianity. And I think in those cases, this behavior in the West reinforces the deserved suspicion 
that people have in the Muslim and Arab world that in fact what Maxime Rodinson called theologocentrism is really not only a school of thought anymore. I think it's fair to say that theologocentrism has become, certainly after September 11, more like a, an ideology of hostility. It is an ideology of hostility. And it has all the characteristics of other ideologies of hostility, including anti-Semitism. I mean, look how they talk about Islam. Look how they write about Islam. They talk about Muslims of the world. All, are, all of them are plotting to take over the world. I mean, this is so ridiculous. And yet, it is widely believed. You have a president who won re-election on the promise to fight against that. That he is not going to allow those radical Muslims. I don't care what words he uses. I don't care for this annual token trip he takes to the mosque, to the mosque in Washington, D.C. I mean, that's not fooling anybody except CNN, Fox News. You know, Muslims know hostility when they see it. And when they see bombs falling on their heads, killing a lot of innocent people, they realize that this is something having to do with a classical, traditional, Western, a largely Christian hostility to Islam and to Muslims. I think the events in Palestine are a very good example. I mean, a very good example. I mean, we can easily, or it seems to me, it should be easy for us to agree on what the terrorism is. I don't use that word because it connotes so many different meanings. But I don't understand why we don't reach an agreement on that word. I mean, if terrorism refers to acts of violence that are against innocent civilians, it seems to me we can say and agree that some Palestinian acts of violence have killed innocent civilians in Israel. But Israeli acts of violence against Palestinians not only have been regular, but if you were to count by the numbers, can you dispute that Israel has killed much more Palestinians civilians than Palestinians have ever killed in the entire history of this conflict by a ratio. In the 1970s, the ratio was 100 to 1. For every innocent Israeli, a hundred Arabs were killed in return. I mean, I don't say in return, because when you say in return as if Israel is responding, often Palestinians see their violence as retaliation, because the first act of violence was visited on the Palestinians by the Zionist movement, not vice versa. And I'm not talking about 67. Talking about 1948, lest we forget the date. The second thing is, I mean, the ratio changed. In the 1980s, the ratio of death by Palestinians and Israelis become 8 to 1. And in the recent conflict, it became 3 to 1. It's narrowed down, but still the case. Israelis kill much more Palestinian civilians than vice versa. But I say all this, not to, to rehash the Arab-Israeli question for you, but to pose a legitimate question. How many, I mean, Palestinians have the right to ask and wonder how many Palestinian civilians have to die before once, not twice, once. Somebody in the West refers to Israeli killing of Palestinians as terrorism. But when that is not done, you certainly reach the inescapable conclusions that some people are more precious than others. Some babies are more valuable than others. Some humans are more human than others. And some civilians are more civilians than others. It just happens that Palestinians and Muslims in general are not valuable, are not expensive human beings. And that's why they can be killed at will in large numbers and their killers will never be seen 
or described as terrorists. Thank you very much. Let's open it up for, for all the debate. You've been listening to a talk given by Professor Absad Abu Khalil, who is a professor of political science at Cal State Sanislaus. He spoke on this Islam factor in Western popular culture beyond the Danish cartoons. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI.